for our scripture reading this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 11. And I would like to read you a story this morning from the life of Jesus, one of my favorites. It's found in John 11. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So please listen as I read John's account of this incredible, amazing event. John 11. Now a certain man was ill... Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So John wants us to know which Mary he's talking about. There are five Marys in the New Testament. So this is Mary, the sister of Martha. So the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the, what? Glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's curious. We'll find out more about that. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now it's time. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. I mean, if he's taken a nap, you know, he'll be okay. He'll wake up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Kind of a sour attitude on what he thought was going to happen. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, Teacher is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with Mary, or who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I love the Bible, don't you? It's unlike any other book. I love the Bible for many, many reasons, but mainly I love it because it tells me the truth. The truth about God, the truth about life, the truth about us, the truth about me. Jesus said, your word is truth. And it certainly is. Now, that's not to say that I always understand all the truth that's in the Bible. And it's not to say that I always accept the truth that I find in there. Sometimes when I read the Bible, what I read runs counter to the way I typically think. And when that happens, I have a choice. Either let God's truth reshape my thinking, which is called repentance, or try to reshape God's truth somehow to accommodate my thinking. That's called foolishness, or unbelief, or arrogance. And I find that reading this story presents me with that choice, and maybe it will for you also. In this amazing story, there are many notable truths, but I want us to focus on just a few realities that relate to suffering and loss and death, and also the wonderful hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. So if you haven't pulled your study notes out yet from your worship folder, you can do that. We're going to look at four truths or four realities about suffering, loss, and death, and the hope that we have in Christ. And the first reality that jumps right out at me from reading this story is this. Jesus purposefully allows painful circumstances to occur that he could have easily prevented from happening. Does that jump out at you also? Let's not skip over that, because that's the very truth, as you know, that your skeptical friends will throw in your face to justify why they don't believe in your Jesus. So you tell me that God is good and you tell me that God is loving and that he's powerful. If that's the case, why didn't he prevent the Holocaust? Why didn't he prevent 9-11? Why didn't he stop that from happening? Why didn't he stop all of the tsunamis that took so many tens of thousands of people's lives and all the earthquakes? And where was God when my little baby was suffering so much? You know, some of the people in this story were asking that same question, weren't they? Even good-hearted people. Jesus, if you'd been here, 
my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? Where were you, Jesus, in my time of need? Even at the gravesite, you could hear the mourners whisper under their breath, this guy healed blind people. Couldn't he have done something to prevent Lazarus from dying? It's true. Jesus could have stopped it. He could have prevented it from happening. But he chose not to. He did not show up in time to save Lazarus. Where were you, Jesus? Where were you? Some of you have asked that question, huh? Where were you? Some of you have asked it recently. Sometimes that question even arises in a heart that's genuinely trusting of God, like Martha, like Mary. I don't understand, God. You're, you're God. You love people. You love me. You could have stopped this from happening. In other hearts, it has an, an, an edge to it. Where were you, God? Did you get to see the clip of our Vice President Joe Biden this week talking to a group of parents who lost sons and daughters in the war, and he was recalling his own loss of his wife and daughter in a tragic car accident back in 1972. And he said, you know, I was walking through the Capitol Rotunda right after I'd found the news out, and, and I just said, God, you can't be good. Where were you? How come you didn't stop this? The truth is inescapable. Jesus does allow painful things to happen, even loss, even death. We could all testify that Jesus often does not swoop in and prevent all bad things from happening to us. So is there anything in this story that gives us something to grab hold of, to hold on to, to stand on, to resolve this apparent tension between God's goodness and power on the one hand and the fact that he lets bad things happen. Is there anything here that can help us? And I believe that there is, but you have to have eyes to see it and a heart that is able to receive it because it's in there, but it's not natural. There is a purpose for God allowing pain and suffering and even death, but until the Holy Spirit of God opens your eyes to see it, It'll seem foreign to you, maybe even offensive. Look back at verse 3. The sisters sent to him. They sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Not really. That's not what this is the point of this. It is for what? The glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And with those words, we're lifted up out of ourselves, aren't we? We're pulled up into the stratosphere and given a vantage point from which we can see now the purpose for everything that happens in the universe and the purpose for the universe itself. It's big. It's huge. It's the glory of God. This is why God does what he does. It's what's in his heart. It's his primary aim in creating the universe to bring himself glory. And I believe God wants to cure us of our low-grade suspicion that we have of his motives when he doesn't show up on time to save us from our troubles or prevent our pain. And many people have a suspicion of God. Where were you? But for this to happen, we need to grasp the second reality that this story reveals. Number two, the purpose of pain. 
In fact, the purpose of the entire universe is to put on display the glory of God. Jesus said, this illness is for the glory of God. That's why I didn't show up. That's why I waited two days. There's a higher purpose in this. It's for the glory of God. Let those words sink in, okay? This illness, this cancer is for the glory of God. The reason I didn't prevent that tragedy from happening was for my own namesake, my own glory. I didn't stop your boss from letting you go because I have a plan for making my name great through that experience. The purpose for allowing that drunk driving accident was to put my glory on display. I've lived that one. This understanding of the heart of God is fundamental for grasping not only the Bible, but life. God's primary aim in the universe is to display His glory, His many attributes. He does what He does for His name's sake. Even the 23rd Psalm says that. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. And it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness. What does it say? For His name's sake. Everything that God allows or causes to happen has that as its purpose. The Bible says all things were created by him and for him. And I love the doxology of Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do a word study sometime in your Bible reading on the word glory or the glory of God. And if your heart can receive it, you will see that God's heart is to magnify his own glory in everything, including the pain of your past, including in that physical affliction or limitation that you suffer with that plagues you every day, the shattering of a dream, the death of a loved one. God aims to magnify his glory. I used to chafe under that. Maybe you do. Maybe you do right now, hearing me talk. You're thinking, I don't like that. I don't like how that sounds. That's not how I want to think about God. I used to chafe under the notion that God is all about his own glory because I thought he should really be focused on my glory, my success, my well-being, my happiness, my prosperity. I thought God should be all about me if he loved me. And so this notion that God is all about his own glory. I, I, I chafed under that. But somehow, through the grace of God, I eventually came to see that if God was all focused on me, that he would be an idolater. He would be a sinner. He would be deceived because I'm not the most magnificent being in the universe. He is. And he knows that. For God to be God, he must magnify his own glory. But perhaps you're thinking, but isn't God supposed to be loving? How can a loving God be all focused on magnifying his own glory? That doesn't sound loving to me. How is God's self-exaltation loving towards me? Maybe you're thinking that. And certainly the testimony of Scripture is that God loves us, right? How do you reconcile that? Well, that brings us to a third reality that this story of Lazarus reveals clearly. Number three, Jesus' love for his people might be something totally different than what we've come to see as love. Let me say that again. 
Jesus' love for us might be something different than what we've grown accustomed to thinking love is. I was nearly 50 years old before I got this. And even today, I get it up here. I'm not sure I totally get it down here yet. I'm waiting for my heart to catch up with my head. God's pursuit of his own glory and his love for me are not at odds. They're not mutually exclusive. His deep desire to magnify his own glory is loving towards me even though it leads him to sometimes allow pain and difficulty and hardship into my life. Now watch how this is revealed. I want us to see this. We've got to go back to verse 5 because the writer here, John, wants us to see how true love really manifests itself. Verse 5. What does it say? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I mean, he loved this family. He, He hung out in Bethany at their house a lot. Maybe they had ribs together. I don't know. He loved this family. John makes a point of it. This is the Mary who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. John included, it hadn't even happened yet, but John includes that little notation to let us know there was a special relationship here between Jesus and these sisters and brother. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Huh? That sounds weird. John wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand that the way Jesus' love manifested itself was by not showing up for a while. Where were you, Jesus? Where were you? Well, I love you, Martha. I love you, Mary. And because I love you, I decided to not show up on time to save your brother. That sounds strange to our ears, doesn't it? You know, Jesus defines love in a different way than the world defines love. I'm tempted to say that Jesus is redefining love, but the truth is is that he defined love in the first place, and it's the world that redefined love. And so if this kind of pain-permitting love doesn't sound like love to you or to me, it's probably because we've been influenced by our culture, by movies, by music. Listen. To be loved by God is not to be protected by him from all pain and suffering. To be loved by God is to be enabled by him to enjoy making much of him through the good times and the bad times. That is love. Listen, if you don't get that, you will eventually be angry with God. If you don't get that, something's going to come into your life someday, a hardship, a difficulty. You're going to get blindsided by something. Something's going to take the wind out of you, and you're going to get mad at God and disillusioned and disenchanted with God because of what you believe love is. And love is different than what this world says love is. Too often we think that someone loves us because they make much of us. That feels good, doesn't it? When someone makes much of us, we feel good about that and we say, well, that's love. But God's love enables us through the gospel to enjoy making much of him forever. That's God's love. 
You can know that God loves you because he's done everything necessary to enable you to be the happiest when you are praising him. You'll never be happier than you are when you're happy in God. You'll never be more glad than you'll be when you're glad in God. This is true, isn't it? I know this is true in my heart of hearts. My deepest joy have been when Jesus and I were like this. One man said, you and I were made to praise greatness. We were created to praise greatness. This is so true. This is why we spend money to fill up stadiums and arenas and music halls in our cities. It's why I stood and clapped and cheered at the award ceremony at the high school the other night when my son was being recognized for his academic achievements. It's why we come out of our seats when our team, down with just a few minutes to go, comes back and snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. We come out of our chairs and say, yes! Because we were meant to be bowled over by awesomeness. We were created for that. That's why we go to the Grand Canyon. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. We go to the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls and Hawaii and these places to be blown away by awesomeness. We want that. That's why we watch American Idol and Dancing with the Stars. We were made to praise greatness. But you know what? All of those experiences were meant to point us to the personification of true greatness, God. God. God made the Grand Canyon. God made Niagara Falls. I don't know if God made American Idol. I think the jury's out on that. God, the glorious one. You see, the most loving thing God can do for us is to give us himself. He's the prize. He's the prize. To give us eyes to see and hearts to appreciate him as the most glorious being in the whole universe. It's love because only then will our joy be the fullest that it can be. Have you ever heard this statement before? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You ever heard that? It's true. It's true. God's being glorified and your being happy are the same pursuit. Happy in God. And so John, in writing this, is very careful to tell us that the reason Jesus stayed away and didn't go to Bethany was because he loved them and he wanted them to see the glory of God. And apparently if he had come, if he'd showed up and healed Lazarus' illness and prevented him from dying, then the people would not have seen the glory of God to the extent that he had in mind. So that's love. I love this quote from John Piper. Don't measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort that he brings into your life. If that were the measure of God's love, then he hated the Apostle Paul. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you, how much of himself he gives you to enjoy. You see, when we're in the midst of hard stuff, and some of you are right there, or have been there recently, when we're in the midst of that hard stuff, It's not just a season for seeing how much we need God. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a season in which God intends to show us more of himself. 
Did you know that there are dimensions of God, there are aspects of God that you cannot appreciate until you've suffered? Isn't it true that the sweetest saints are those often who have been crushed and through that experience of knowing God better, through the pain they have become, there's a sweetness of spirit about them, a trust in God, a wisdom. And so he allows those things into our lives out of love. That's what his love is, giving us more of himself for us to see and savor and enjoy. Some of you know God better because of what you've been through recently. You know God better. And that was his intent in allowing it. And so it can be a bittersweet thing. But you know what? There's something else in this story, and we certainly don't want to miss this. Yes, the reality that God doesn't spare us from pain and loss. Yes, his purpose in allowing these things is to put his glory on display. Yes, his love is revealed to us, even through our pain. But there's a fourth reality that Jesus intended for his people to rejoice in and hope in. Number four, the reality that changes everything is that Jesus promised to raise everybody from the dead one day. And he proved his ability to do it. Lazarus' resurrection was a preview of your resurrection and my resurrection. And Jesus was in effect saying, I can do this. (laughs) I'll show you. And as I read through, through this story, I feel the anticipation building, building as they get closer and closer to the tomb. First, Jesus comes near to the town and Martha goes out. Verse 21, and she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. One of his great I am statements. He's saying, I am life. I am resurrection. Wherever I am, new life comes about. Sounds like what we learned in Colossians when it said Christ is our life. He's saying, I am life. The personification of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, I believe. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. You know, Martha gets a bad rap sometimes, doesn't she? For another incident where, you know, her performance was less than stellar, I guess. But here, Martha is rock solid. You're the one, Jesus. I'm sure of it. I know that you can do anything even now. And that disappointment of Jesus not showing up on time, the sorrow of losing her brother, starts to give way to something else rising up in her heart. Maybe, maybe he's going to do something. Then Mary comes out to meet Jesus and she's weeping she's grieving like some of you are grieving Martha's weeping the mourners are weeping in the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus is weeping son of God fully knowing what he was going to do in just a few minutes starts to cry get that picture in your mind then they all start making their way to the grave site Take away the stone, Jesus says. But Lord, 
he's been in there for four days already. It's going to stink. We're not doing that embalming thing yet. And the spices that we packed his body with, that's worn off. It's going to be really bad. In verse 40, Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There it is again. The purpose for everything. And then he prayed out loud to his father for the benefit of those who were listening. So they would realize, oh, there's a connection here between this man and God. You know, part of why I used to chafe at the God-centeredness of God is because I wasn't taking the Holy Trinity into account. I thought it was selfish of God to be self-focused. It's selfish of me to be self-focused, right? But then God opened my eyes to realize that it's not like that. God is one God, but he exists in three persons. And what you see in Scripture is the three members of the Trinity unselfishly glorifying each other. The Father seeking to exalt the Son. Don't we find that over and over again? Giving Him the name that's above every name. The Father glorifying the Son. And then the Son seeking to glorify the Father like He's doing here. And then the Spirit empowering the Son to glorify the Father. And the Spirit empowering us to glorify the Son. So there's this beautiful, unselfish harmony in the Trinity. Glorifying one another. That realization changed my whole mindset about the self-exaltation of God. And so here, by the Spirit's power, the Son is glorifying the Father for what he's about to do, a beautiful thing. Take away the stone. And so some guys move the stone that sealed the tomb, and the crowd is waiting in anticipation. You, you don't think he's going to... You, know, you wonder what they were thinking. Lazarus, come forth. Many scholars have noted how important it was for Jesus to narrowly specify whom exactly he was calling out of the grave at this point. For if he had simply called out, come forth, all the graves would have opened and there would have been formerly dead people walking around and it would have just been mayhem. (laughs) Lazarus, just you for now, come forth. (laughs) Others, later. And John records with eight words, eight simple words, the God-glorifying, faith-fueling, skeptic-defying result. And the man who had died came out. Like my wife and I like to say, you don't see that every day. (laughs) You don't see dead people walking around every day. I remember when my son and I, a few years ago, were riding bikes down by the um, Mifflin Cemetery down there. It was a nice day, and for some reason we decided to stop and park our bikes and go walking through the cemetery. And we were looking at the inscriptions on each of the gravestones, and I remember reading some of them, and and I I just felt moved to say this. I said, son, you know, one day Jesus is going to call all of these people back to life. He promised that he would, and his eyes got real big. And I could see the wheels turning like, how's he going to do that? (laughs) I said, I I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's promised to do it. Aren't you glad there's at least one person in the world who keeps their promises? Jesus. It's true. Lazarus' resurrection was a preview of your resurrection and mine. 
I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's Lazarus. Next phrase. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's you and me. That's grandma and grandpa. That's your mom who knew Jesus. That's your father who passed away in the Lord, your brother, your son or daughter who loved Christ. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the Christian servicemen and servicewomen who gave their lives in service to our country, who knew Christ. In fact, Jesus in John 5 says he's going to raise everyone. There's coming a day, he said, when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and live. Those who didn't know Christ will rise and they'll be headed for judgment which is why the gospel is so important. And those who are in Christ will rise to live forever together with each other and with Christ in heaven. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel of Christ. That's the hope of Christianity. And it brings us to a final question. It's the same one that Jesus asked Martha. It's a great question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And I ask you, do you believe this? Believe what? Do you believe that in the deepest core of your being that God has a purpose for allowing the difficulties and hardships and trials and losses in your life? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants to glorify himself through your response during difficult times? Do you believe that? That he's able to do that? Do you believe that your deepest joy will be found in glorifying God. Do you believe that God's love for you is demonstrated not by making your life easy and smooth, but by using difficult circumstances to open your eyes to see the beauty of who He really is? Do you believe that God wants to reveal Himself to you, more of Himself to you through your pain, through your hardship? Do you believe this? And do you believe his promise that one day he will raise his people to life and they will spend forever loving each other and loving him throughout all of eternity? Do you believe this? Well, I pray that God will give all of us the faith to believe all of it. Not just up here, but in here. To believe it for God's glory and for our joy in him. Well, we have set aside these next few moments as a sacred time for us as a church family together. It's a time for us to acknowledge our losses over the past six months or so. I don't know that I can remember a stretch in the history of this church where so many new lifers have said goodbye to parents and grandparents. I mean, I've just prayed with, it seems like, dozens of people over the last six months or so. So much loss. Some of you have experienced it recently. Losing someone you love is hard, isn't it? It's very hard. Several of you wrote me of your experience in this. One who just lost um, her, her father wrote this. The months leading up to my father's death were difficult, yet so filled with the love of God. His faithfulness was evident in so many ways. This was a man who suffered from Alzheimer's and then went to be with the Lord. And they, 
enumerated all the ways that God showed his faithfulness. And they finished up with this. One more way that Jesus revealed himself throughout the illness and death of my dad was in my mom's request. She wanted to be able to keep him home and care for him until the day that he forgot her name. Dad had to go into a nursing home because his needs were just too much for mom to handle. But I rejoice that he never forgot her name. This is an amazing thing for an Alzheimer's patient who had forgotten how to read, how to care for himself, even how to eat and how to swallow. Dad remembered mom and all of us until he took his last breath. Praise God for his faithfulness. Someone else wrote, said, I've just gone through the death of a baby, two parents, and the loss of a job. I can firmly say that it's all simply a test. I wish I could say I praise Jesus' name all day, every day, through the rain and the storm and the sun. Most days I was too tired to think. Making sure I attended church and my small group every week helped. Surrounding myself with godly friends kept me focused on the right things. Kept my eyes upward and focused without straying. So while I may not have been up there swinging my hands, shouting praise the Lord with everybody else, I certainly had it in my heart. And had I not had Jesus with me, I wouldn't have the comfort of knowing exactly where my mother, my mother-in-law, and my tiny baby are. And I wouldn't have the certainty that I get to see them again one day. A woman who lost her husband just a few months ago said this, Through our loss, there has been pain like we have never, ever felt before. But Jesus has always been by our side, and we continue to lean on him. He gives us true peace and rest from our grief, and we feel his presence all around us in the good times and in the bad times. It's so difficult to lose someone, and, and you know, if you're ministering to someone like that, you say, well, what do I say? Well, so often you just don't say anything. You just be there. You just be with them. And your hugs and your listening ear can mean a lot. And if the Lord does open up a time to say something, what I usually just say to someone is, you know what? Just cling to Jesus cling to Jesus he wants to take you by the hand and walk with you through this cling to Jesus he's been there he's been there so in these next few moments we as a church family are going to do something we've done for I think six years now and that's acknowledge our losses through the lighting of a a candle and it could be the loss of a loved one who's gone on to eternity, but it could be another kind of loss. There are lots of losses over which we grieve. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe your health is declining and you're grieving the the progressive losing of your health. Maybe a marriage came apart or a strong friendship came apart in recent months. Maybe the death of a dream, something that you'd always thought God was going to do and it's becoming apparent it's not happening. Maybe you've had the experience of miscarrying and there's an unborn child that you grieve over. Whatever your loss might be today, I would encourage you to come and light a candle to acknowledge that loss. We We have a commitment around here of being real about life and the things that life deals us sometimes. Our prayer partners are going to come up here and they're going to be available to pray with any of you. If you're struggling, if you're struggling... Like a woman last night was struggling with why her husband had to die at that particular time that he did. Just let somebody pray with you and pray over you. If you are someone who's lost a family member in service to their country or a loved one, you can come and light a candle and then as you return to your seat, take 
an American flag with you just as a, a commemoration, a memorializing of that person's sacrifice for our country. And so this is our time as a church family to bring our losses. And we we put crosses in the middle of this display to remind us that when we come with our grief and our losses, we're really bringing them to the foot of the cross, to Jesus. And we're saying, Jesus, take this, shoulder this load with me. It's, It's a lot to bear. Cling to Jesus, okay? So when you're ready, come.